Our reading is from chapter 40 of Genesis. Uh, but for context, recall from last week that Joseph has been thrown into prison, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. And, uh, but even then, he, God is with him and is delivering him uh, for his own purposes. So I'd like to start uh, at the end of chapter 39, a little running start into chapter 40, at verse uh, 22 of chapter 39. And the keeper of the prison committed jo to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Chapter 40. And it came to pass after these things that the, that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and, so, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into the, into the, in them, I'm sorry, Joseph came to them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and in the vine there were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it, was, it is well with you, and please show your kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. Three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head off from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. 
And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. How did you get here this morning? What, what route did you take? So my guess is that there's more than one way to get from your house to this, this building in which we are here now. Did anybody choose to go the long way? We all took the shortest route, didn't we? It's what we do. If we're going to a new place, we pull out our phones and we see I'm here. I need to get there. This is the fastest route, so we go. We do this not only in our everyday travels, we do this in life, too. So we think about our current situation, we think about our desired destination, and we say, okay, I'm here, it's there, this is the shortest route, so let's go. So any other steps along the way, any other stops are delays. It's wasted time. But I wonder, is that the way the Lord works? So does the Lord look at our lives and say, okay, you're here, but this is where I ultimately want you to be. So here's the, here's the quickest, most efficient route to get there. So all other times, all other stops, destinations, it's a waste of time. Does our Heavenly Father share our obsession with efficiency, productivity, does he share our irritation when our well-laid plans are delayed? Or does he actually bring the delays? These are relevant questions for us as we continue to study Moses' narrative of the life of Joseph here in Genesis 40 and 41. There's too much here to cover in detail. We will not get to every single detail, but the overall structure of what's happening in these two chapters it's pretty easy to follow. So essentially we have dreams, we have troubled spirits, we have interpretation of those dreams, and then we have fulfillment of those dreams. This happens twice over, once to two of Pharaoh's servants, the officers in his house, the butler or cupbearer and the baker, and then also with Pharaoh himself. In these two chapters, by his grace, through divinely inspired dreams, through Joseph's divinely granted interpretations, the Lord's revealing to Pharaoh, he's revealing to us one basic truth, and that is the Lord has plans, and he's going to bring those plans about. God will do what he said he's going to do. What he has spoken, he will make happen. I think that's the point of these chapters. I think it's the point of Genesis, the Pentateuch. I think it's the point of the whole Bible. If the Lord God Almighty promised to do something, he'll do it. It's as good as done. And yet, in acknowledging that truth, what we need to now think through is the way God goes about doing that. And what we find in Scripture is that the Lord accomplishes these things, not with the snap of his fingers, but on the ground in real time. 
So the one true God, he, he demonstrates his control over all things, over all time, by working through all things in time. And this is what we call providence. Providence is just a way of speaking about the Lord's control over all things and all time, the way that he works in them and through them and by them to accomplish what he already said he's going to accomplish. And I think Joseph's narrative is here for just this purpose. For the good of our faith, for the good of your faith here this morning, what's happening is it's pulling back the curtain just a little bit on how God works in his providence. And I think this text is uniquely equipped to show us these things because in this narrative, we have both of these elements. We have, we have the Lord revealing exactly what he will do, and then we have him revealing exactly how he goes about doing it. And not surprisingly, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the Lord's ways are not our ways. Praise God for that. So I think this means, though, we have to pause and actually reflect on his ways. And in this passage, I think he's driving home this main point regarding his sure and steadfast plans. And I think we're given some really, some really helpful categories to consider concerning God's providence. And that's the way I want us to spend our time as we reflect on these two chapters this morning. I want us to consider four, four kind of realities to contemplate regarding God's providence. <coughs> Excuse me. Four realities to contemplate regarding God's providence. The first thing I think we need to contemplate is what providential paths are like. What providential paths are like. All right, so in previous passages and previous sermons, it's already been well established. God is providential, he's purposeful, he's planning. So he's not figuring things out on the fly. He's not making lemonade out of lemons. So in his eternal wisdom, God is at work working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But the question is, what does that look like on the ground? So if I'm seeking to set out on God's providential path, well, what would I expect those paths to look like? Let's just trace the narrative a little bit. We'll spend a lot of time here on this first point. All right, so remember back a little further in the narrative, back to chapter 37. That's the very beginning of this Joseph narrative, and there Joseph has two dreams of his own. Remember that? And what, were the, what was the upshot of those dreams? What was the main point of those dreams? what the Lord was revealing to him. Even though Joseph is amongst the, the youngest of the sons, the Lord would actually exalt him above everybody else, everyone in his family. Even his very father would come and bow down before Joseph. That's way back in Genesis chapter 37, verse 11. All right, so now here we are, three chapters later. So surely this has been long enough, enough time for the Lord to make good on his stated purpose. Where would you expect to find Joseph now, three chapters later, after having given, been given this promise from the Lord? Probably exalted. Maybe he's in some kind of new kingly leadership position over Israel. At the beginning of chapter 40, Joseph is a slave. In Egypt. He's not even in his own country. And not only is he not just a slave, he's bound as a prisoner. So those first few verses of chapter 40, they're driving home this reality. Five times Moses mentions being confined in custody. He wants us to get that picture. Joseph does not have freedom here. He is bound. 
Joseph is not exalted. He's, if anything, he is denigrated. And I think this teaches us something about the way the Lord works in his providence. And that is, the paths of providence are not a straight line to glory. God's providential paths for his people are often meandering, long and winding roads. Think about it. The Lord promises Joseph exaltation and then immediately leads Joseph into the sharp turn onto winding, confusing, roundabout, indirect, twisting paths. And he does it on purpose. And if we follow these providential paths which the Lord led Joseph along, I think we learn a ton about the way the Lord actually leads his people. So if we, if we rid ourselves of the notion that the Lord shares our goal of efficiency, I think we'll actually be able to slow down and smell the roses of providence, so to speak. And if we do that, I think we'll, we'll smell them everywhere. These sweet glimpses of providence in our life. But we have to be paying attention. If we, if we trust the Lord's winding providence, I think we'll notice several things that we notice here in Joseph's story, and that is providential appointments along the path. So I don't know if these are subpoints, whatever. I'll just kind of give you some things to think through. But these are just the things I think we see here in the text. We see providential appointments all over the text. That is the Lord bringing different people into the narrative. In good time, the Lord brings into Joseph's life the people that he needs and who need him. So in chapter 40, we get two new characters. You see it there? So Joseph, I would assume, is having a routine day when two other guys show up out of the blue. He planned none of this. So it turns out they're officers of Pharaoh himself, the cupbearer, the butler, and the baker. So Joseph, he wasn't out seeking influence with Pharaoh. And yet here he is, and here they are. I think we also notice in this providential circumstances. Stops along the way are not, they're not these evil interruptions, they're providential circumstances. So we already know why Joseph is in prison, that is unjustly accused. But why are these other two guys here? So we, all, we, we know almost no detail about the cupbearer and the baker, only that they had, chapter, uh, verse 1 says they'd committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So I'm assuming there's a million tiny details that led up to whatever decision they had eventually made that was a crime against Pharaoh. So we don't know, but here they are, by God's providence, in prison with Joseph. We also see the providential circumstances of them having dreams while here in prison with him. Just so happens that this is an area in which Joseph has some experience, isn't it? We even see providence over the life and death of these guys. So what's interesting, even as John was reading that narrative, as their dreams reveal, one of these men is to die for his offense, the baker, while the other will be mercifully, kind of unexplainably spared. Why? Well, we actually have no real idea, at least according to the text. There doesn't seem to be any difference in their offense. There's no difference in their initial punishment. There doesn't seem to be any difference in their guilt. And yet there is evidently a difference in their place in God's providential story. So the, the verdict comes in. Did you notice the kind of play on words there, the irony in which Moses depicts what's happening here? The verdict comes in that both men will be, both their heads will be lifted. <laughs> the cupbearer's head will be lifted 
That is, back to his position. He'll be restored to his place with Pharaoh. The baker's head, however, verse 19 says, will be lifted up from him. (laughs) That is, not restoration, but condemnation. He'll be hanged. What's the difference in these men? What's the difference in their circumstances? It seems, at least according to how I'm reading the text here, it's nothing except the mercy of God's providence. One of these guilty men is spared, which even here we see the Lord laying kind of a twist in Joseph's story that he couldn't see yet. We also see providential gifts being given along the way. That is, providential abilities that match the occasion in which the Lord has placed somebody. So Joseph, evidently, he not only has dreams, but he can interpret dreams. I guess technically he has faith in God's ability to interpret dreams, but we'll get to that here in a minute. But think about it. Into this strange situation of dreams and troubled spirits, the Lord places Joseph, and he gives him the perfectly relevant gift for the occasion. So Joseph now, he's not kind of this passive, um, kind of like receiver of everything in this text. He's an essential actor in the story of God's providence. And what you see in Genesis 40 and 41 is he just plays his part faithfully. So Joseph hears the cupbearer's dream, and he provides an interpretation. And so we won't get all the details of the dream there, but what's the upshot of the interpretation there in 13 and following? The cupbearer will return to Pharaoh. All right, so put yourself in Joseph's shoes here for a second. So this, to Joseph, this is amazing news. This is providence. If Joseph could just have someone speak directly to Pharaoh on his behalf, well, then he could be free. And here, according according to nothing of his own plans, seemingly out of the blue, the Lord just drops such a person that could give him an ear with Pharaoh. I mean, this is it. This is a providential circumstance, no doubt. So Joseph reveals his dream, the interpretation of the dream, and then he makes a sensible plea to him. Joseph kind of seeking to lay the next brick in his path. Look at verse 14, chapter 40. He says to the cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to me, mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house. He's like, listen, this is the interpretation. You're getting out of here. I, and I want to be out of here. So you're going right back to Pharaoh. Can you just, when you're there, can you just do this tiny thing and just mention this unjust situation? It's so easy. And then look at how the chapter ends, verse 23. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. (laughs) What? I mean, did the Lord, like, forget his plan? I mean, was it not clearly God's providential will that the cupbearer would be the means of Joseph's immediate liberation? Yeah, what does he do? He forgot. I mean, is this not the most, like, human thing ever? He gets out, Joseph's life hangs in the balance, and he forgot. So Joseph is left there, forgotten. 
we don't know all the reasons why the Lord works this way. But if we think about it, we do know the effect of the Lord working this way, don't we? Think about it. Through this strange providence, the Lord was taking all grounds of human hope away from Joseph, wasn't he? This is difficult, but think about what else it means. What this means is that being forgotten by people is not the same thing as being forgotten by the Lord. Being left behind by people is not the same thing as being left behind by providence. Joseph was completely forgotten by the cupbearer, which was not a problem at all for the Lord. You know, I just encourage you, Christian, it's very likely that at some point you'll be forgotten, that you'll be left behind by people. That somebody very close to you will utterly disappoint you. Maybe you know this, maybe very acutely, what it feels like in your family, in your job, in your friendship, just in life. Please know that that is not the same thing as being forgotten by the Lord. How do we know this? We know this because this not only happened with Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, it happened with Jesus, the beloved son of God. Jesus was led in the providence of his father into the very valley of death, straight to the cross. Are we to say he was forgotten by the Lord? So here, the providential path for Joseph has him remaining in the pit, the place of death. But that's just chapter 40. Gratefully, there's another chapter to Joseph's life, chapter 41. And here in chapter 41, we encounter yet more providence and yet more dreams, this time in the very dreams of Pharaoh. Let's read a few verses here. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cow cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep. And dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All right, the details are different, but do the circumstances sound familiar? So we have two dreams, a mysterious message, a troubled spirit, a need for interpretation. It sounds familiar to us, all right? We just read this. And in God's providence, it sounded familiar to someone else who was 
by that same providence, alive and well in Pharaoh's household. So standing right next to Pharaoh as he ate and drank and ruminated about these dreams is who? That's right, the cupbearer. And here we see God's providence, I think, even over thoughts and memories. The cupbearer is standing there just watching all this, right? So he's watching the mediums come in, the magicians come in, this one gets stumped, that one gets stumped, he leaves, this one gets killed, whatever it is. No one knowing what in the world these dreams mean. And Pharaoh's like, man, I, I got this dream and nobody can interpret it. And then miraculously, a thought pops into this dense head of the cupbearer and he pipes up. He's like, oh my goodness, I know a guy. Look at verse nine. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense, offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. The, bake, the baker was hanged. And with this sudden memory, the new course of Joseph's life is set. And here we have one final providential appointment. Pharaoh is desperate. And he's troubled enough that he actually listens to the cupbearer. And he sends for Joseph. So verses 14 through 23 there, he's, he's essentially just recounting the details of his dream. So we won't read those yet here today. And then in verses 25 through 32, using the gift given him by the Lord... Joseph simply, straightforwardly explains the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. Look there, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up from them, came up after them, are seven years, and the seven empty, ear, ear, empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt." The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, so having the same, essentially the same dream twice, he says, means that the thing is fixed by God. Notice the doubling of Joseph's dream early on. And God will short, shortly bring it about. The point, Joseph says, is that the Lord is revealing the next 14 years of history ahead of time. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And all this leads to the fateful step towards the providential fulfillment of God's promise through Joseph's dreams. Remember his exaltation. 
So imagine, imagine Joseph's disbelief when he hears what Pharaoh says next. I mean, I'm assuming Joseph expected to be killed for speaking in the presence of Pharaoh, much less speaking of another God in the presence of Pharaoh. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is, in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, listen, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set to you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is unbelievably, he's taking the keys of the kingdom of Egypt, and he's handing them to a Hebrew slave. You see that? And the language of exaltation, finally, it couldn't be more abundant. Notice it even, even brings up echoes of Adam in the garden, of the dominion that he was supposed to have in the first place. He goes on in verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand. And that, in other words, a new identity for Joseph. And he clothed him in the garments of fine linen. Notice another garment being put on Joseph, the one from whom a garment was taken. And a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Think of the description of Joseph now. Two seconds ago, he was sitting in a prison cell. And now no one in the kingdom is allowed to lift a finger without his consent. That's how Pharaoh puts it. At the beginning of chapter 37, Joseph, he was, he was promised this exaltation. At the beginning of chapter 40, he has known nothing since then except relegation. And yet, at the end of chapter 41, Joseph is the prince of Egypt, the, the hope of the world, as the text speaks of it. The point, at least a point we need to see, is that God's paths of providence, they are always sure, but they are not always straight. So Christian, just think about your own life. What is your destination in Christ? It's Zion, it's the new Jerusalem, it's glory, it's exaltation, sanctification, that's what's coming. But if this is true, well then what would you expect your path to be like? I would expect it to be surprising, winding. The Lord did not take Joseph to the throne and he does not take us to glory as the crow flies, so to speak. He got Joseph and he will get us through, he'll get us there through meandering, unexpected paths of providence. All right, so if that's true, if the paths of providence are not straight lines to glory, then this helps shed some light on yet another truth regarding providence. This is the second point. 
And here I want us to see what providential timing is like. What providential timing is like. These next points are more brief. You know, it's interesting that in the Joseph narrative, Moses is deliberate to provide for us clear markers of time. Did you notice that as we've been reading? So back in chapter 37, verse 2, we were told that Joseph is 17 years old when this whole thing starts. Now here in chapter 40, verse 1, he makes clear that the things about which we're now reading, they happened, quote, some time after this. In other words, not immediately. He's been in this situation for a while. And then, chapter 41, verse 1, after this plea to the cupbearer to remember him, we're told that nothing significant happened for two whole years. Finally, in verse 46 of our chapter here, he completes kind of the math equation for us. He tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when he was chosen by Pharaoh and exalted. All right, so at age 17, the Lord gave Joseph this dream a vision, a promise of being exalted. He took him straight from that dream into slavery and then into prison for 13 years. In other words, what we're learning here is that God's providential timing is unhurried, which means there are going to be times in our lives when we want the Lord to do something, something big, and he just doesn't. So think of Joseph at like year nine of this whole ordeal, right? I mean, what is his life? It was by all human accounts nothing. I mean, he's just been, he's just been set aside. He's just buried in this prison, in this pit in Egypt, in oblivion. How would we, so we're, if we're contemporaries of Joseph, how would we look at such a life? <laughs> we'd call it a waste, wouldn't we? We'd question, I mean, I mean, does the, Lord, does the Lord not know that Joseph is like this uniquely sharp, gifted tool that, be, that could be used for all sorts of good things, good kingdom purposes? And yet the Lord's just like stowing him out of sight, out of mind for over a decade? That's a waste, right? Is it? Maybe you're reading this narrative. Maybe it strikes home for some of us. So maybe you're not physically enslaved, imprisoned, but if you're honest, your life kind of feels like it. You're hidden away. You're out of sight, out of mind to most people. Every now and then it crosses your mind that maybe you're out of sight, maybe of God himself. I mean, why else would you be living a life that's seemingly so inconsequential? Listen, I would encourage you if the Lord's main goal in the lives of his people was simply to get things done, to maximize their productivity, well then yes, 13 years in prison is wasted kingdom time. But if maximum productivity, if maximum efficiency is not the goal, if faithful, if faithful work in God's kingdom is not just the cultivation of the outside world, but cultivation of the inner spiritual world of fellowship with God, then 13 years in prison is anything but a waste. If sanctification, if growth in holiness, if growth in faith, if constant deepening fellowship with, with God, if that's the goal, then 13 years of hardship, it's more like a greenhouse than it is a prison, isn't it? 
Listen, if you're measuring your life by the speed of your worldly climb, rather than by the steady growth of holiness through, through regular fellowship with the Father, well, then the unhurried providence of God is going to be a real source of frustration for you. The Lord was not wasting Joseph's life in prison. He was refining Joseph's life. Very often, to allow us to know him better, the Lord takes us on a long, meandering, unhurried road. There's a story of a little girl who lived outside of a rural village. And every day, her, since the time she was really young, her father would wake her up early so they could take the five-mile walk to the village to gather the things they needed for work that day and that week. Over a two-hour walk, when they would take their time walking, talking along the way, her dad would tell her stories. She would ask him questions. And they would arrive almost surprisingly at the destination. They'd get what they needed. They'd walk back. Every day they would do this. It was long and hard and tedious, and they loved it. It wasn't until she was about 12 years old, playing with some friends, she and her friends came across a path that her father had never shown her before. So they, they hop on this path just to see where it led. And to her utter amazement, within 20 minutes, they were standing in the village. The village to which she and her father had walked five miles every day along a long, winding path, it was really, it was only a little more than a mile away. So she went and told her father about this new path, which of course was not a new path at all, and of which he was perfectly aware. She asked a little exasperated, why, why do you take me on the long path to get the supplies? And he kind of smiles at her and replies, our, our walks, they were, they were never about getting supplies. They were about getting acquainted. He says, we, we could have gotten there quicker, but we couldn't have gotten there better. Church, our heavenly father, he is not in a hurry. He is not about arriving quicker, but better. He loves teaching us about himself on the way to himself. And for this reason, the paths of providence are very seldom efficient. They are very usually meandering through all kinds of peaks and valleys, which if left up to us, we would avoid at all costs. So listen, maybe, maybe you're in a season of waiting Maybe you're praying and praying and God just seems deaf. The only answer you get is more waiting. Do you think, do you think over these 13 years, do you think Joseph prayed that things would be different? It seems obvious that he would. Surely he prayed from that initial pit to be rescued. How long those first few hours seemed. Surely he prayed from that caravan to Egypt among these strange people that he didn't know what would happen at their hands. Surely he prayed from slavery to Potiphar, asking to be released. God, please release me. Surely he prayed from prison, asking to be justified. And yet, 
If the Lord had answered any one of those genuine, legitimate, desperate, biblical prayers in accordance with exactly what Joseph wanted, where there would be no prince in Egypt, there would be no grain in reserves, there would be no hope for the world, there would be no fulfillment of God's promises. Tim Challies puts it so well. He says, God knew better than to answer Joseph's prayers in the way that seemed so good and so necessary to that young man. God's paths in his providence, they are winding, which means they are not hurried. I think all this, this context of providence, it provides a great circumstance for us to see this third point, which is what the obedience of faith looks like. I want us to see what the obedience of faith looks like. It's easy to see that Joseph is a model of faith in this narrative. But think about it. In what way is he a model of faith? How do we see his faith expressed? Notice we don't see his faith demonstrated in a prison break. He doesn't faithfully rise, kind of raise up a coup, lead an uprising in Egypt for the faith. No, in the narrative, we see something even more, I think, profound. And that is, Joseph has the faith to simply be faithful in the really terrible situation in which the Lord's placed him. So that's, that's Joseph's story, right? Whether he's humbled or exalted, he just, everywhere he shows up, he just faithfully does the thing that the Lord's asking him to do. In chapter 39, he was faithful to flee sin, pursue righteousness, which led him uh, to jail. In, in prison, he simply trusts God and stays faithful. Sometimes the Lord blesses what he does. Sometimes he leaves him there even longer. And then all of a sudden, here in chapter 41, a situation, sudden situation comes along. Two guys are having scary dreams. <laughs> and what is faithful Joseph do? He says, well, I know God, and he knows dreams. And then it doesn't go anywhere for a while. A couple years later, he's called the Pharaoh, who has also had a bad dream. Look back at a couple of verses we skipped. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when, they had when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Again, Joseph, we'd assume, is just kind of faithfully going about his daily tasks in prison. And then out of the blue, one of those once-in-a-generation opportunities comes along. And the question now is, could he be faithful in a big task? They pull him out of the dungeon. Evidently, you can't just go traipsing in to see the king right out of prison. So they put him through a whole cleansing process. They clean him. They shave him. They reclothe him. It's like he's about to approach a god, which, according to the Egyptians, he was. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh said to, eat to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. <laughs> this godlike figure calls out to Joseph from his throne, and he says, I heard you interpret dreams. And how does Joseph respond? I know how I would respond. I'd be like, yeah, that's my thing. That's what I do. What does Joseph say? Verse 16. 
Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. (laughs) Not only does he deflect, but he mentions the name of another God. What's the first thing Joseph does with Pharaoh? He corrects him. Joseph understands that his life task is to simply be faithful and to testify to what's true, no matter the situation. And here, well, Pharaoh has spoken wrongly. Joseph corrects him, it's not me who can interpret, it's my God. Remember what had just happened before this scene. He had just called upon and paraded all the pagan powers of the empire, all the magicians, all the wise men of Egypt, the ones in whom the king and the people could trust for all wisdom and power, right? He brings them in, trying to find someone, anyone who can tell them what in the world his dreams mean, and they all leave one by one without being able to say a single thing about the interpretation of the dream. And then he calls Joseph. (laughs) And Joseph says, your magicians can't do this one. I can't even do this. But there is one true God who can. In other words, your little gods are going to have to step aside and listen to the voice of God. Joseph, he's just being faithful. He's just being obedient where he is. And through his normal, (laughs) through through his utter obedience the truth of the one true God, now it's becoming known and now it's becoming revered in the nations, in the very house of Pharaoh of Egypt. And from here on out, Joseph just continues faithfully, confidently, dependently to interpret and announce that the interpretation of the dream is revealing the purpose of the one true God. Look at how he emphasizes this. Plainness of speech, verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly shortly bring it about. (laughs) Joseph has this remarkable, humble confidence that what the Lord has revealed is what the Lord will actually do. So he lives it, And he speaks it. And that's what genuine faith looks like. And these circumstances, I think, they provide us with one last thing of which to take note. So we don't just see what genuine faith looks like in Joseph. We also see what the wisdom of faith looks like. This is the final thing I want us to see, the wisdom of faith. Notice in verse 32, Joseph stops speaking the interpretation. But he doesn't stop speaking. In verse 33, he goes from being an interpreter to an advisor. You see that? In other words, he demonstrates wisdom in light of faith. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. He's just laying out this step-by-step plan, isn't he? And let them gather all the food of these good years, 
that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. It's like Joseph embodies the book of Proverbs before it's written. All right, so he says, he says, this is who God is and what he will do. And then he says, this is what you should do in light of who God is and in light of what God said he'll do. And that's wisdom. It's, it's knowing what God is like, in other words, fearing God. It's knowing what he's doing, and it's just acting in accordance with what he's revealed. So Joseph says, okay, you, since you dreamt of seven healthy cows, seven healthy stalks of grain being eaten up by seven unhealthy cows, seven unhealthy stalks, since this means that God's bringing about seven good years, followed by seven years of famine, which will eat up those good years, well, then you should get your best man and start preparing right now. Use all these good years to store up reserves for the bad years. Just love this. So, so Joseph has a corner now on providence through these dreams. He's seen the future, so what does he advise? Get to work. In other words, he's showing us that the wisdom of faith means that God's providence does not make us passive. God's providence makes us productive. If God is active, so are his people. He's working, so we work. So amazingly, Pharaoh didn't kill Joseph on the spot for being so audacious as to advise him. As we saw earlier, he says, here are the keys to the kingdom. And in this role, Joseph just goes on. He just exemplifies the wisdom of faith. He leaves all the cities in Egypt to use these seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine, which will save the world. Read those last few verses. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to, jo came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Wisdom recognizes there is a God. This God has revealed what he's doing in the world. And so I better get on board with what he's doing. In the Bible, God has announced what he's doing and he's calling the world to action. So it's worth asking as we close, is that you? So in light of what God 
is doing what he says he will do yet. Are you being wise? So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please listen to this truth. Listen, just as in Joseph's story, the Lord has revealed his will. He has revealed what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news in Christ. And the gospel, it announces what God has done already. And what has he done in Christ? He's provided an atoning sacrifice for sins. This is the whole point of why Jesus came incarnate to earth, why he was led to the cross, why he suffered and died on that cross. The penalty of sin, which we all, of which we're all guilty, has been laid on Christ. That's what God has done. But the same gospel announces what God will do. And that is the world will be judged for their sin. And in that light, the same gospel calls the world, calls us, calls you to action. And what it's saying, just as in this passage, that your years of prosperity won't last. The lean year of judgment is coming. So be wise. Just as in verse 57, all the earth was now summoned to Joseph, the faithful, wise, suffering, exalted servant. They're, they're drawn to him to find life and salvation. So now what the gospel says is that all the earth, every person in every nation is summoned to Christ. Christ who is the real, faithful, wise, suffering, exalted servant. And we're called to him, called to action to find new, true, spiritual life by faith. The gospel would call you to repent, to turn from the famine of sin, to come to the provision, come to the feast of Christ. Hide yourself in him by faith. Proclaim with your heart, with your mouth, that his death was for you, that his resurrection was for you. He's the one whom God has given to save us from death. Listen, for those of us who have come to Christ in faith, let's remember our God, he is committed to crowning us with glory one of these days. But he's also committed to walking with us, teaching us about himself on the way to himself. And for this, the Lord God Almighty, our great God, our Father, in his kind providence, he very often takes the long route. So church, let's, in the meantime, let's not waste the long, winding path. Fellowship with him along the way. And that fellowship begins here together at the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we stand in awe of your providence. God, we thank you for the way in which you draw, to, draw near to us for fellowship along the way. We thank you for the way in which you're committed to our inner good, our spiritual good. And we praise you for the great hope that we have in Christ. God, we see glory we are excited for it. We want to be there. So along the way, Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to trust you. Help us not to rush unrushed plans. Lord, be glorified in our lives as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.